Chapter eighty eight of He Knew He Was Right. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He Knew He Was Right by Anthony Trollope. Chapter eighty eight Cropper and Burgess. We must now go back to Exeter and look after Mr. Brooke Burgess and Miss Dorothy Stanbury. It is rather hard upon readers that they should be thus hurried from the completion of hymenials at Florence to the preparations for other hymenials in Devonshire but it is the nature of a complex story to be entangled with many weddings towards its close. In this little history there are, we fear, three or four more to come. We will not anticipate by alluding prematurely to Hugh Stanbury's treachery, or death, or the possibility that he after all may turn out to be the real descendant of the true Lord Peterborough and the actual inheritor of the title and estate of Monkham's, nor will we speak of Nora's certain fortitude under either of these emergencies but the instructed reader must be aware that Camilla French ought to have a husband found for her, that Colonel Osborne should be caught in some matrimonial trap, as how otherwise should he be fitly punished, and that something should be at least attempted for Priscilla Stanbury, who from the first has been intended to be the real heroine of these pages. That Martha should marry Giles Hickbody, and Barty Burgess run away with Mrs. McHugh, is of course evident to the meanest novel-expounding capacity, but the fate of Brooke Burgess and of Dorothy will require to be evolved with some delicacy and much detail. There was considerable difficulty in fixing the day. In the first place Miss Stanbury was not very well, and then she was very fidgety. She must see Brooke again before the day was fixed, and after seeing Brooke she must see her lawyer. "'To have a lot of money to look after is more plague than profit, my dear,' she said to Dorothy one day particularly when you don't quite know what you ought to do with it. Dorothy had always avoided any conversation with her aunt about money, since the first moment in which she had thought of accepting Brooke Burgess as her husband. She knew that her aunt had some feeling which made her averse to the idea that any portion of the property which she had inherited should be enjoyed by a Stanbury after her death, and Dorothy, guided by this knowledge, had almost convinced herself that her love for Brooke was treason either against him or against her aunt. If, by engaging herself to him, she should rob him of his inheritance, how bitter a burden to him would her love have been! If, on the other hand, she should reward her aunt for all that had been done for her by forcing herself, a Stanbury, into a position not intended for her, how base would be her ingratitude! These thoughts had troubled her much and had always prevented her from answering any of her aunt's chance allusions to the property. For her, things had at last gone very right. She did not quite know how it had come about, but she was engaged to marry the man she loved, and her aunt was, at any rate, reconciled to the marriage. But when Miss Stanbury declared that she did not know what to do about the property, Dorothy could only hold her tongue. She had had plenty to say, when it had been suggested to her that the marriage should be put off yet for a short while, and that, in the meantime, Brooke should come again to Exeter. She swore that she did not care for how long it was put off, only that she hoped it might not be put off altogether. And as for Brooke's coming, that, for the present, would be very much nicer than being married out of hand at once. Dorothy, in truth, was not at all in a hurry to be married, but she would have liked to have had her lover always coming and going. Since the courtship had become a thing permitted, she had had the privilege of welcoming him twice at the house in the close, and that running down to meet him in the little front parlour, and the getting up to make his breakfast for him as he started in the morning, were among the happiest epochs of her life. 
and then, as soon as ever the breakfast was eaten and he was gone, she would sit down to write him a letter. Oh, those letters, so beautifully crossed, more than one of which was copied from beginning to end because some word in it was not thought to be sweet enough. What a heaven of happiness they were to her! The writing of the first had disturbed her greatly, and she had almost repented of the privilege before it was ended, but with the first and second the difficulties had disappeared, and, had she not felt somewhat ashamed of the occupation, she could have sat at her desk and written him letters all day. Brooke would answer them, with fair regularity, but in a most cursory manner, sending seven or eight lines in return for two sheets fully crossed, but this did not discompose her in the least. He was worked hard at his office, and had hundreds of other things to do. He, too, could say, so thought Dorothy, more in eight lines than she could put into as many pages. She was quite happy when she was told that the marriage could not take place till August, but that Brooke must come again in July. Brooke did come in the first week of July, and somewhat horrified Dorothy by declaring to her that Miss Stanbury was unreasonable. "'If I insist upon leaving London so often for a day or two, said he, how am I to get anything like leave of absence when the time comes?' In answer to this Dorothy tried to make him understand that business should not be neglected, and that, as far as she was concerned, she could do very well without that trip abroad which he had proposed for her. "'I'm not going to be done in that way,' said Brooke, "'and now that I am here she has nothing to say to me. I've told her a dozen times that I don't want to know anything about her will, and that I'll take it all for granted. There is something to be settled on you that she calls her own.' "'She is so generous, Brooke.' She is generous enough, but she is very whimsical. She is going to make her whole will over again, and now she wants to send some message to Uncle Barty. I don't know what it is yet, but I am to take it. As far as I can understand, she has sent all the way to London for me, in order that I may take a message across the close." "'You talk as though it were very disagreeable coming to Exeter,' said Dorothy, with a little pout. "'So it is, very disagreeable. Oh, Brooke!' very disagreeable if our marriage is to be put off by it. I think it will be so much nicer making love somewhere on the Rhine than having snatches of it here, and talking all the time about wills and tenements and settlements." As he said this, with his arm round her waist and his face quite close to hers, showing thereby that he was not altogether averse even to his present privileges, she forgave him. On that same afternoon, just before the banking hours were over, Brooke went across to the house of Cropper and Burgess, having first been closeted for nearly an hour with his aunt, and, as he went, his step was sedate and his air was serious. He found his uncle Barty, and was not very long in delivering his message. It was to this effect, that Miss Stanbury particularly wished to see Mr. Bartholomew Burgess on business, at some hour on that afternoon or that evening. Brooke himself had been made acquainted with the subject in regard to which this singular interview was desired, but it was not a part of his duty to communicate any information respecting it. It had been necessary that his consent to certain arrangements should be asked before the invitation to Barty Burgess could be given, but his present mission was confined to an authority to give the invitation. Old Mr. Burgess was much surprised, and was at first disposed to decline the proposition made by the old harridan, as he called her. He had never put any restraint on his language in talking of Miss Stanbury with his nephew, and was not disposed to do so now, because she had taken a new vagary into her head. But there was something in his nephew's manner which at last induced him to discuss the matter rationally. 
"'And you don't know what it's all about,' said Uncle Barty. "'I can't quite say that. I suppose I do know pretty well. At any rate, I know enough to think that you ought to come, but I must not say what it is.' "'Will it do me or anybody else any good?' "'It can't do you any harm. She won't eat you. But she can abuse me like a pickpocket, and I should return it, and then there would be a scolding match. I always have kept out of her way, and I think I had better do so still.' Nevertheless Brooke prevailed, or rather the feeling of curiosity which was naturally engendered prevailed. For very, very many years Barty Burgess had never entered or left his own house of business without seeing the door of that in which Miss Stanbury lived, and he had never seen that door without a feeling of detestation for the owner of it. It would, perhaps, have been a more rational feeling on his part had he confined his hatred to the memory of his brother, by whose will Miss Stanbury had been enriched and he had been, as he thought, impoverished. But there had been a contest, and litigation, and disputes, and contradictions, and a long course of those incidents in life which lead to rancor and ill-blood, after the death of the former Brooke Burgess. And as the result of all this, Miss Stanbury held the property, and Barty Burgess held his hatred. He had never been ashamed of it, and had spoken his mind out to all who would hear him. And, to give Miss Stanbury her due, it must be admitted that she had hardly been behind him in the warmth of her expression, of which old Barty was well aware. He hated, and knew that he was hated in return. And he knew, or thought that he knew, that his enemy was not a woman to relent because old age and weakness and the fear of death were coming on her. His enemy, with all her faults, was no coward. It could not be that now at the eleventh hour she should desire to reconcile him by any act of tardy justice nor did he wish to be reconciled at this the eleventh hour. His hatred was a pleasant excitement to him. His abuse of Miss Stanbury was a chosen recreation. His unuttered daily curse, as he looked over to her door, was a relief to him. Nevertheless he would go. As Brooke had said, no harm could come of his going. He would go, and at least listen to her proposition. About seven in the evening his knock was heard at the door. Miss Stanbury was sitting in the small upstairs parlour, dressed in her second-best gown, and was prepared with considerable stiffness and state for the occasion. Dorothy was with her, but was desired in a quick voice to hurry away the moment the knock was heard, as though old Barty would have jumped from the hall door into the room at a bound. Dorothy collected herself with a little start, and went without a word. She had heard much of Barty Burgess, but had never spoken to him and was subject to a feeling of great awe when she would remember that the grim old man of whom she had heard so much evil would soon be her uncle. According to arrangement, Mr. Burgess was shown upstairs by his nephew. Barty Burgess had been born in this very house, but had not been inside the walls of it for more than thirty years. He also was somewhat awed by the occasion, and followed his nephew without a word. Brooke was to remain at hand, so that he might be summoned should he be wanted, but it had been decided by Miss Stanbury that he should not be present at the interview. As soon as her visitor entered the room, she rose in a stately way, and curtsied, propping herself with one hand upon the table as she did so. She looked him full in the face meanwhile, and curtsying a second time, asked him to seat himself in a chair which had been prepared for him. She did it all very well, and it may be surmised that she had rehearsed the little scene, perhaps more than once, when nobody was looking at her. He bowed, and walked round to the chair and seated himself, but finding that he was so placed that he could not see his neighbor's face, he moved his chair. 
he was not going to fight such a duel as this with the disadvantage of the sun in his eyes. Hitherto there had been hardly a word spoken. Miss Stanbury had muttered something as she was curtsying, and Barty Burgess had made some return. Then she began. "'Mr. Burgess,' she said, "'I am indebted to you for your complacence in coming here at my request.' To this he bowed again. "'I should not have ventured thus to trouble you, were it not that years are dealing more hardly with me than they are with you, and that I could not have ventured to discuss a matter of deep interest otherwise than in my own room.' It was her room now, certainly, by law, but Barty Burgess remembered it when it was his mother's room, and when she used to give them all their meals there, now so many, many years ago. He bowed again, and said not a word. He knew well that she could sooner be brought to her point by his silence than by his speech. She was a long time coming to her point. Before she could do so she was forced to allude to times long past, and to subjects which she found it very difficult to touch, without saying that which would either belie herself or seem to be severe upon him. Though she had prepared herself, she could hardly get the words spoken, and she was greatly impeded by the obstinacy of his silence. But at last her proposition was made to him. She told him that his nephew Brooke was about to be married to her niece Dorothy, and that it was her intention to make Brooke her heir in the bulk of the property which she had received under the will of the late Mr. Brooke Burgess. Indeed, she said, all that I received at your brother's hands shall go back to your brother's family unimpaired. He only bowed and would not say a word. Then she went on to say that it had at first been a matter to her of deep regret that Brooke should have set his affections upon her niece, as there had been in her mind a strong desire that none of her own people should enjoy the reversion of the wealth, which she had always regarded as being hers only for the term of her life, but that she had found that the young people had been so much in earnest, and that her own feeling had been so near akin to a prejudice, that she had yielded. When this was said Barty smiled instead of bowing, and Miss Stanbury felt that there might be something worse even than his silence. His smile told her that he believed her to be lying. Nevertheless, she went on. She was not fool enough to suppose that the whole nature of the man was to be changed by a few words from her. So she went on. The marriage was a thing fixed, and she was thinking of settlements, and had been talking to lawyers about a new will. "'I do not know that I can help you,' said Barty, finding that a longer pause than usual made some word from him absolutely necessary. "'I am going on to that, and I regret that my story should detain you so long, Mr. Burgess.' and she did go on. She had, she said, made some saving out of her income. She was not going to trouble Mr. Burgess with this matter, only that she might explain to him that what she would at once give to the young couple, and what she would settle on Dorothy after her own death, would all come from such savings, and that such gifts and bequests would not diminish the family property. Barty again smiled as he heard this, and Miss Stanbury in her heart likened him to the devil in person. But still she went on, she was very desirous that Brooke Burgess should come and live at Exeter. His property would be in the town and the neighborhood. It would be a seemly thing, such were her words, that he should occupy the house that had belonged to his grandfather and his great-grandfather. And then, moreover, she acknowledged that she spoke selfishly, she dreaded the idea of being left alone for the remainder of her own years. Her proposition at last was uttered. It was simply this, that Barty Burgess should give to his nephew, Brooke, his share in the bank. "'I am damned if I do,' said Barty Burgess, rising up from his chair. But before he had left the room he had agreed to consider the proposition. 
Miss Stanbury had of course known that any such suggestion coming from her without an adequate reason assigned would have been mere idle wind. She was prepared with adequate reason. If Mr. Burgess could see his way to make the proposed transfer of his share of the bank business, she, Miss Stanbury, would hand over to him, for his life, a certain proportion of the Burgess property which lay in the city, the income of which would exceed that drawn by him from the business. Would he, at his time of life, take that for doing nothing which he now got for working hard? That was the meaning of it. And then, too, as far as the portion of the property went, and it extended to the houses owned by Miss Stanbury on the bank side of the close, it would belong altogether to Barty Burgess for his life. It will simply be this, Mr. Burgess, that Brooke will be your heir, as would be natural. I don't know that it would be at all natural, said he. I should prefer to choose my own heir. No doubt, Mr. Burgess, in respect to your own property, said Miss Stanbury. At last he said that he would think of it, and consult his partner, and then he got up to take his leave. For myself, said Miss Stanbury, I would wish that all animosities might be buried. We can say that they are buried, said the grim old man, but nobody will believe us. What matters if we could believe it ourselves? But suppose we didn't. I don't believe that much good can come from talking of such things, Miss Stanbury. You and I have grown too old to swear a friendship. I will think of this thing, and if I find that it can be made to suit without much difficulty, I will perhaps entertain it." Then the interview was over, and old Barty made his way downstairs and out of the house. He looked over to the tenements in the close which were offered to him, every circumstance of each one of which he knew, and felt that he might do worse. Were he to leave the bank he could not take his entire income with him, and it had been long said of him that he ought to leave it. The croppers, who were his partners, and whom he had never loved, would be glad to welcome in his place one of the old family who would have money, and then the name would be perpetuated in Exeter, which, even to Barty Burgess, was something. On that night the scheme was divulged to Dorothy, and she was in ecstasies. London had always sounded bleak and distant and terrible to her, and her heart had misgiven her at the idea of leaving her aunt. If only this thing might be arranged! When Brooke spoke the next morning of returning at once to his office, he was rebuked by both the ladies. What was the ecclesiastical commission office to any of them when matters of such importance were concerned? But Brooke would not be talked out of his prudence. He was very willing to be made a banker at Exeter, and to go to school again and learn banking business, but he would not throw up his occupation in London till he knew that there was another ready for him in the country. One day longer he spent in Exeter and during that day he was more than once with his uncle. He saw also the Messrs. Cropper, and was considerably chilled by the manner in which they at first seemed to entertain the proposition. Indeed, for a couple of hours he thought that the scheme must be abandoned. It was pointed out to him that Mr. Barty Burgess's life would probably be short, and that he, Barty, had but a small part of the business at his disposal. But gradually a way to terms was seen not quite so simple as that which Miss Stanbury had suggested, and Brooke, when he left Exeter, did believe it possible that he, after all, might become the family representative in the old banking-house of the Burgesses. "'And how long will it take, Aunt Stanbury?' Dorothy asked. "'Don't you be impatient, my dear?' "'I am not the least impatient, but of course I want to tell Mamma and Priscilla. It will be so nice to live here and not go up to London. Are we to stay here, in this very house? Have you not found out yet that Brooke will be likely to have an opinion of his own on such things? 
But would you wish us to live here, aunt? I hardly know, dear. I am a foolish old woman and cannot say what I would wish. I cannot bear to be alone. Of course we will stay with you. And yet I should be jealous if I were not mistress of my own house. Of course you will be mistress. I believe, Dolly, that it would be better that I should die. I have come to feel that I can do more good by going out of the world than by remaining in it. Dorothy hardly answered this in words, but sat close by her aunt, holding the old woman's hand and caressing it, and administering that love of which Miss Stanbury had enjoyed so little during her life, and which had become so necessary to her. The news about the bank arrangements, though kept of course as a great secret, soon became common in Exeter. It was known to be a good thing for the firm in general that Barty Burgess should be removed from his share of the management. He was old-fashioned, unpopular, and very stubborn, and he and a certain Mr. Julius Cropper, who was the leading man among the Croppers, had not always been comfortable together. It was at first hinted that old Miss Stanbury had been softened by sudden twinges of conscience, and that she had confessed to some terrible crime in the way of forgery, perjury, or perhaps worse, and had relieved herself at last by making full restitution. But such a rumor as this did not last long or receive wide credence. When it was hinted to such old friends as Sir Peter Mancrudy and Mrs. McHugh, they laughed it to scorn, and it did not exist even in the vague form of an undivulged mystery for above three days. Then it was asserted that old Barty had been found to have no real claim to any share in the bank, and that he was to be turned out at Miss Stanbury's instance, that he was to be turned out, and that Brooke had been acknowledged to be the owner of the Burgess share of her business. Then came the fact that old Barty had been bought out, and that the future husband of Miss Stanbury's niece was to be the junior partner. A general feeling prevailed at last that there had been another great battle between Miss Stanbury and old Barty and that the old maid had prevailed now as she had done in former days. Before the end of July the papers were in the lawyer's hands, and all the terms had been fixed. Brooke came down again and again to Dorothy's great delight, and displayed considerable firmness in the management of his own interest. If fate intended to make him a banker in Exeter, instead of a clerk in the ecclesiastical commission office, he would be a banker after a respectable fashion. There was more than one little struggle between him and Mr. Julius Cropper, which ended in accession of respect on the part of Mr. Cropper for his new partner. Mr. Cropper had thought that the establishment might best be known to the commercial world of the West of England as Cropper's Bank, but Brooke had been very firm in asserting that if he was to have anything to do with it the old name should be maintained. "'It's to be Cropper and Burgess,' he said to Dorothy one afternoon. They fought hard for Cropper, Cropper, and Burgess, but I wouldn't stand more than one Cropper." "'Of course not,' said Dorothy, with something almost of scorn in her voice. By this time Dorothy had gone very deeply into banking business. End of chapter 88